Okay, welcome to this evening's meeting of the Aristotelian Society. Before I start, I just want to say that this evening we have to be out of this room on the stroke of six because there's a meeting in here afterwards. So perhaps we could uh, keep to our schedules for tea and, and so on. Anyway, um, it's great pleasure to um, welcome uh, Dudley Knowles, who has recently retired from Glasgow, where he held the position of Professor of Philosophy. His main interests are in political philosophy, and he's published widely in this area, including three books, Political Philosophy in 2001, The Routledge Guidebook to Hegel's Philosophy of Right in 2002, and Political Obligation, A Critical Introduction in 2009. And he's going to speak to us this evening on Good Samaritans and Good Government. Thank you. Thank you very much for your in introduction. I should say it's a pleasure to be in London. I was a student here uh, many, many years ago, and it's a real pleasure for me to see two of my teachers in the audience, David Wiggins and Anthony Saville. So I should say as well, actually, those, in those days there was a Bedford College. That's where I was a, a, a student. And I'll always be grateful for the quality of the education that I got there. And from David and from Anthony, as well as others in particular. So that's this sort of acknowledgement bit. Um, it's a pleasure to come back. Well, in this paper, what I'll be doing is um, discussing quite a recent account of political obligation and the problems surrounding it that derives from uh, Christopher Heath Wellman, his Samaritanism account. It hasn't had a lot of discussion, but when I was writing about political obligation in general, I thought it was a plausible um, story, an interesting theory, well worth further uh, discussion, and I discussed it uh, in a sketchy fashion uh, in that book. What I'm doing now is looking at it in a little more detail, and in particular taking up some objections that have been put to it and answering them. Whether I'll do any more on the subject, I'm not sure. It's not one of those papers where I can confidently announce to people that you can expect something that's very sketchy and hesitant, but of course it will be part of a forthcoming book, right? I don't quite have that plan yet, but um, so no excuses on uh, that score. But this is the story so far anyway. I begin this paper with a number of assumptions. Of course, I put them here as assumptions. I defend them to the death in my book. And if anybody has any questions concerning them, I'll be, I'll be pleased to um, discuss these things. But I'll just go through them briefly uh, to start with. First of all, concerning um, what I prefer to call citizens' duties, but the name political obligation is uh, stuck with us. I distinguish very sharply philosophical questions and practical or political questions. And I take it it's the job of the philosopher to ask, for example, do arguments from consent um, work, as, for example, as giving a ground for a political Obligation, and then one can, you know, one teases out the notion of consent. One discusses conditions for validity, etc. And that's all good philosophical work. It's work that philosophers are good at. A separate question is this: Supposing we've got all the arguments from and around consent in place, a separate question concerns, let's say, my obligations here and now. A question of how far. Does, let's say, life in the UK match up to the conditions we've articulated as uh, necessary for an obligation based on consent? And that job, I think, is not the job of uh, the philosopher to answer these sorts of practical questions on the basis of details concerning current affairs. Although philosophers have, as I say, ultra-crepidarian ambitions, 
I hope those of you who've uh, read it beforehand went chasing to your dictionary, right? Someone is, uh, uh, deploys ultra-crepidarian tendencies, ultra, ultra, and cre crepidus last, who actually are akin to the cobbler who doesn't stick to his last. Philosophers are very good at um, assuming that they know the facts of the case. Well, I want to stay away from all those sorts of issues, sticking to my conceptual last. Anyway, that's a, a minor irrelevance, but I, I like people to go away from one of my talks thinking that they've learned something. If it's only a new long word, right? <laughs> so that's it. Second, I don't think it's the job of the, it's not necessarily the job of the philosopher um, to explain why all citizens of all states have a full regimen of duties. I think there's a minimal task for the political philosopher in, in this area, and that is to demonstrate, right, that it's possible that some citizens of some states should accept some prescribed duties. That's the sort of minimalist position. The maximalist position, of course, is rather like Hobbes's enterprise, is to show that all citizens of all non-failing states right, uh, have an obligation to accept all of the duties that are prescribed to them. But between those two extremes, some citizens, some states, and some duties, between that extreme and all citizens of all non-failing states to get Hobbes right, have all the duties. Between those two, there are a lot of, there's a lot of space for good philosophical argument. Thirdly, this, I, I, I guess this is a, yet another meaning for the word pluralism. But I think, as against many political philosophers nowadays who, who would think that there are no arguments that actually work in this domain. Oddly enough, I think, given my pretty minimal expectations, right, I think there are lots. Lots of them work. Some of them might work by themselves. Some of them work in harness with others. Some work for some citizens and not for others, right? There's lots of scope, I think, for a variety of um, arguments. And the way the state conceives itself, so far as I can see, is this. The state, if it's intelligent, will collect together arguments, put them to the citizens, claiming that the generally factual grounds on which these arguments are conditional apply. And then the citizen can go through the arguments, check their cogency, be good philosophers, and then see whether or not the state is correct as to whether or not the factual circumstances are such that these arguments apply in their particular case. But I'm not after, as it were, the golden argument that succeeds where none else might that will capture all successful states and all citizens with all touted beauties. Finally, and this is a Another assumption that uh, I don't defend in, in the paper, I can answer questions on it. Philosophers have made a fuss, I think, in the last 20 years or so, distinguishing the problem of state legitimacy or legitimate authority on the one hand and the problem of citizens' obligations to accept incumbent duties on the other. Now, I agree that these are very different concepts. Nonetheless, as it were, the central problem here is one, I think, that yokes in both of them. Uh, it's most unlikely that one would have a successful account of political obligation that didn't concern an authority which, on independent or not so independent grounds, was reckoned to be legitimate, and vice versa. If one accepted that the authority of some state was legitimate, um, I think it would be very strange if, again, to put it minimally, if one accepted no duties as prescribed by that 
state. So although we have, we have different concepts here, and although there might be areas of slippage, which, as I say, philosophers have drawn attention to, I see these problems as, as related. Nonetheless, because I'm discussing Wellman primarily here, I'll respect his practice, and so far as possible, although I'll be guilty of slippage, um, so far as pos possible, I'll um, tackle these, these things separately in the way that he recommends. Now, Wellman's theory, I'll be quite brief on this. In a, in a number of publications, he calls his account um, Samaritanism. He says that just states may be legitimate and thinks that knocks out uh, anarchism in, in all its forms. And secondly, he argues, same argument, different conclusion, that all citizens of just states have a political obligation to obey the law. I call this account of political obligation and states' legitimacy, I call it Samaritanism simply because he does, right? It's his um, jargon that uh, I'll just take over because it's his arguments that I'm um, discussing. And the Samaritan duty that lies at the core of the arguments here is a duty of care for others. Um, the background, which he labors, I think, is that if there were no state, if citizens recognized no obligations, we would be living in something like Hobbes's state of nature, that life in any case, of course he portrays the matter differently, right, would be uh, intolerable without peace and stability. The costs of the state are heavy, but the benefits, he believes, are massive. And so the state on the one hand and citizens on the other are able to do good at little cost. And that basically is the um, Samaritan perspective. I say I won't talk about the state of nature here, the state of nature argument, largely because I think so much of it depends upon facts, again, of which we aren't masters. I, I, I suspect that the Hobbesian scenario works better for a modern state that has collapsed or is collapsing than it would do for Arcadia. But that's just, that's just a hunch, that's just a guess, right? And somewhere, somewhere the truth would lie in, a, I suppose, history and some kinds of current affairs, but uh, I, don't want to, I don't want to discuss the details. Yeah. Not least because, you know, there's always an anarchist. And uh, as I say here, I don't want to swap stories. I remember I used to. I, I, I had an anarchist friend and neighbor in the 1960s, and we used to argue about these things. And he'd always think the, the argument was clinched by some story about um, camps in the aftermath, refugee camps in the Second World War or something like that in East Anglia, where one of them was autonomously self-governed. The one in the next parish had been taken over by Colonel Blimp, and he'd hand me the little anarchist tract that gave all that information. But my experience of that, as I say, was that discussions are endless, right, when matters of fact aren't agreed. So I'll put this argument, I'll just take the state of nature as an assumption, I'll put the argument in conditional form, look, if life in a state of nature will be <coughs> solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short, then, and the argument can get moving. Now, the basic Samaritan norm that I mention here is this, this is to quote Wellman, the common understanding of Samaritanism is that one has a duty to help a stranger when the latter is sufficiently imperiled and one can rescue her at no unreasonable cost to oneself. And the standard example of a Samaritan duty, I think this, arrived, this, this comes from Peter Singer originally, is that of the bystander who can rescue the drowning child or make it worse, baby, by wading into a foot or two of um, water. Now notice in this case, we do speak of a Samaritan duty. I mentioned that just to pick a little fight, really. It's not important, but a little fight with Wellman, for whom the duties of the Samaritan state are really, as he says, 
liberty rights of one kind or another, either the Hofeldian privilege or else just a negative claim right entailing uh, a duty. Well, I'm going to stick with duty as duty and uh, not explain them as liberties that the state has, whereby it may permissibly uh, interfere. If it can act, if it's justified because it can act as a Samaritan and protect the citizens from the incipient state of nature, then I say it has a duty um, to do so. Whether that's perfect duty or an imperfect duty, I'll um, talk about later, because that question frames one element, one quite important element of what I take it is um, my distinctive contribution. Anyway, the thought is that the state is not justified in coercing me on the grounds that this coercion is to my benefit. For a liberal like Wellman, and me too, such an argument will be impermissibly paternalistic. Rather, the state, he says, and this is... The state, he says, is justified in coercing me and you in order that other citizens should not stand in peril of the state of nature. We are to see the state as exercising a Samaritan duty of care, a duty to coerce each citizen in order to benefit every other citizen. Now, and the form that benefit takes, the benefit that the state procures, the benefit that we procure for others by accepting an obligation is their security in the face of the um, state of nature. Now, of course, this is true, that um, if all of you were dutiful citizens, and if I were to be a rogue and fail to perform my Samaritan duties by supporting the state when I could do so at no cost to myself, then you wouldn't all of you f fall into the state of nature. At that point, and this is a wrinkle in Wellman's story that I shan't be discussing, although again, I'm happy to, he says it's fairness that demands that we each of us take up our fair share of the Samaritan chore. So we have the Samaritan duty of care to protect others who might otherwise fall into a state, state, state of nature, doing two jobs, vindicating the authority of the state as a consequence of which we can call it uh, legitimate, and secondly, it will explain why each citizen has a duty to accept the obligations, the duties that the state imposes. Because by doing so, one important element of their compliance is that other citizens are protected um, from the state of nature and its hazards. So each citizen, each one of us on this story, is both rescuer and rescued. Each of us is, each party is a man from Samaria uh, and a Jew, saviour and victim, both. We're each to see as ourselves as threatening and um, threatened, and we're each to recognise a Samaritan duty of care, which on the part of the citizen takes the form of endorsing the prescriptions of the state. Now, can this theory be... Um, Defended, I say to my understanding, at least it's novel, although you might think it's pretty obvious. Um, it's as it were, it's simply Hobbes, except we've added to and now considering independently this thought that instead of a prime interest in securing um, life and commodious living for ourselves, we all of us have. Uh, an equivalent interest, giving rise to a duty of care to secure life and commodious living for our fellow citizens. That's the intuition behind it. Um, blindingly simple, I think. What, what I'll do next is go through a number of um, criticisms of this position and address myself to them. Simmons has been Wellman's harshest um, critique and he points to the oddity of Wellman's construal of the Samaritan duty. Um, he adverts both to the state and to citizens right, as having 
as being responsible for, this, this is his terminology, the rescue of citizens from the perils of the state of nature. And that conceit that it's the job both of the state and as citizens to come to the rescue of um, others gains credibility from the sorts of examples that he uses. These are examples uh, in, in the text. We have Alice in the 205 um, publication. He says Beth, rescuing Beth. In 205, it becomes Amy from imminent death by using Carolyn's car. Right, that's the sort of thing, sort of example that he's using. And Simmons says quite correctly, I think, that it really is odd, it's strange to attribute to the state and derivatively to, or independently to citizens, the duty to, re to rescue other citizens from the perils of the state of nature, as though the state of nature is some abyss that we're prone quite swiftly to drop into, um, as though there's some imminent disaster that we must ensure that we um, prevent. Right? Now, I agree with Simmons, actually, so far as the language is uh, hyperbolic here. But uh, Simmons expands his point by distinguishing, on the one hand, um, duties of rescue, and on the other hand, duties of charity, beneficence, or simply um, goodwill. And the contrast is quite clear. If I'm walking along the street and someone collapses on the pavement and I go to their assistance, you know, mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation or something of that sort, right, then that person is, um, is in need of rescue and that's really what they're, what, what they're getting. It's a duty of charity or beneficence or something like that, so um, well, I mean, at least contrast one element of, of the story that accounts for why the state should have ambulances in place to come to the assistance of the poor person who's collapsed or indeed come to assist the rescuer um, should they need it. So on the one hand, we have rescue. On the other hand, we have general beneficence or even justice, um, he says. And then he concludes... In this way, he says, notice that the very idea of institutions administering such a duty, duty of rescue in emergencies, by collection, collection of taxes, presumably, and distribution, presumably, of the monies thus raised, makes no sense in this case. He tells us that the Samaritan duties, as brought onto the scene by, by um, Wellman, are a curious hybrid of rescue and charity which I think they are. Right? That's, that's really what Wellman is doing. And there is, as Simmons points out pretty brutally, an air of philosophical artifice, um, at least about the language in which Wellman's construction is couched. Now, my thought is that may well be so, but is there a, is there a, a, a flaw in, in the argument here, deeper, than the, you might think, misleading uh, ret rhetoric? Uh, I think not. I think what we have in focus precisely is a duty of care. And the need may be more urgent, the danger may be more or less severe, and so on the one hand you'll get the drowning infant, and at the other end you'll get a state, or me willingly paying my taxes towards a state that makes provision, if required, for assistance of some sort to those who need it. In other words, there's a perspective here. It isn't general beneficence that we're talking about. It's uh, the implications of one accepting uh, a duty of care that he calls it rescue throughout and emergency throughout. I, I, I take to be no um, real importance at all so far as the argument is concerned. If we recognize that we have a duty of care to fellows and we believe, as it were, factually, that 
this is an occasion when the income tax comes in, I suppose, to um, recognize it, then it would be grounds, I think, for accepting such an obligation. I, I, I make some other remarks in, in the paper. Perhaps I should just speak to them generally. Um, the thought is that Wellman is being hyperbolic, I think, in talk of his rescue and emergency and the like. At least he's being hyperbolic to those of us who live in pretty well-settled um, Western democracies. Nonetheless, as I say in the paper, in, in my lifetime, not that long for heaven's sakes, there have been riots in Los Angeles, Newark and Washington, in Brixton, Bristol, Manchester and Liverpool, in Paris and even Zurich, for heaven's sakes, right? Um, and of course, that was written before this summer. You know, you can now add Croydon to the list, right? Birmingham, Manchester again. Um, anyway, now the lesson of that seems to be that uh, civility, you know, we, folks may not be in need of rescue, but there's a, the, we should have an understanding that civility um, maybe no more than skin deep. You know, there may be a political cause in which such strife originates. But as, the, as soon as there's sufficient people on the streets for the police to retreat, then um, the shops are looted, the white goods are lifted, and the premises uh, burnt. And that's, the, that's the Hobbesian lesson, I think. <coughs> Simmons has a further worry, and it's not a worry that I share, so I'll mention it briefly and move on. He believes that the legitimacy of the state has its source in the state's Samaritan duty of care. And then he argues that states are not the kind of thing um, that can have duties. There's a sort of, as I say, metaphysically squeamish point here that individuals, persons can have duties, but um, states can't. Since I don't have any of that squeamishness, believing that states are everyday phenomena of objective spirit, there you go, that's, <laughs> guys, that's a bit of the of the Hegel, that's, that's something that I quite, forwardly, quite straightforwardly reject. Indeed, you might want to say this, it's one of the features of the state as an objective phenomenon, precisely that it has um, duties and responsibilities. It's constituted um, by them. And there's no oddity in thinking of states, for example as having a duty of care. Now, I mentioned earlier um, perfect and imperfect duties. Is this duty of care perfect or um, imperfect? I, I, I tackle it for two reasons. One, Wellman, you know, you've got to have somebody to fight on these occasions. Wellman insists that it's a perfect duty um, on the part of the state, but it's a liberty right as well. Um, and thus, enforceable. Um, now, it's true that this language of a perfect duty on the one hand and an imperfect duty on the other, the distinction is not crystal clear. A perfect duty by and large has these properties. We know what the content of the duty is. We know to whom um, it's owned. And in case of infraction, um, there will be certain provision for um, enforcement. There'll be sort of precision so far as the demand that the duty be complied with is concerned and the uh, requirements of enforcement are concerned. An imperfect duty, on the other hand, there may be no specifiable content. It may be hard to say exactly what is expected of someone who has such a duty, and in consequence, it can be hard to enforce. It looks as though with imperfect duties, there's such a scope for discretion 
on the part of the person to whom the duty or the institution is attributed that um, enforcement is not in place. Now, do we need to decide whether this duty, or these duties of the state on the one hand and the citizens on the other, do we have to decide whether these duties are perfect or imperfect? Well, it looks as though we do, and Wellman certainly thinks we do, um, for this reason, if we were to think of the citizen's duty as an imperfect duty, it looks as though we identify as an imperfect duty what many have thought of as quite central, indeed the sole constituent of political obligation, that is the duty to um, obey the law. And if we were to deem the duty of the Samaritan duty of protection for others as an imperfect duty, it looks as though we would have no story to tell concerning um, the state's powers of enforcement. And remember that at bottom it's these powers, it's these co coercive powers that the state exercises, at least so far as the state is concerned, that's the source of the requirement for justification. So I'll look now at the different duties and ask this question again concerning whether um, they're perfect or imperfect so as to characterize them with a little more accuracy. So far as the state is concerned, I said it's an oddity in Wellman's story anyway, as I've mentioned, because he thinks the state merely has a permission, but taking it as a duty, it will be a duty with this minimal content, I think, the content will, will be to protect and secure citizens against the sorts of hazards that one would find in a state of nature. But uh, how do we spell that out? We know that there's a huge variety of answers to that question. What is the duty of the state whose purpose is to prevent citizens from falling into a state of nature. At one extreme, we have the night watchman state, where we have the night watchman patrolling the streets of the city at night and going along the walls to check for external enemies. That's one parameter. But the other one, the far extreme, is that of the full welfare state. So this will be open. We can fairly attribute to the state, I think, a duty to protect and preserve citizens in the face of the hazards of the state of nature. But exactly what that consists in, I think, will be open. Um, Hobbes, of course, thought that the state of nature, the hazards of the state of nature, were massive, and so the task of the state was correspondingly um, capacious. Amongst the incommodities of war to be prevented, Hobbes tells us, are the, the total lack of industry, agriculture, transport, education, science, arts, and letters. And so when the state protects the citizen against the hazards of the state of nature, one might take Hobbes arguing here that these are goods that should be prevented by the state, not simply a, a night watchman state. So that's the first point to notice about the Samaritan duty of the state, so far as its content is concerned, right? One could defend an account that's less on the one hand and more capacious on the other. Secondly, if it were a perfect duty, according to the brief characterization of the distinction that I gave, right, it would be enforceable. But remember, the state now has a a Samaritan duty, who is to enforce it against um, the state? How can it be enforced against the state? One's left making remarks of the sort that, well, you know, if the state uh, is unable, as Hobbes thought, to actually protect the citizens, to procure the goods that the state of nature compromises, then if the state is failing, obligations um, cease. But that's not enforcement, really. Uh, Locke was a bit stronger on this. He thought that a right of rebellion should be conceded to citizens of a state that failed um, to protect 
the rights of its citizen. But there's no standard model of enforcement either. So at least from the point of view of the Samaritan duty of the state to protect the citizens, it looks as though it's an imperfect duty. Now, this, this shouldn't faze the philosophers who then have, you know, plenty more tasks in this dom domain. What then is the proper scope of the duties of the state that would protect um, the citizen? Loads of things to do with night watchman state and welfare state, whatever. Ever. But uh, certainly, so far as the argument's gone so far, right, those questions are not answered. Uh, they'll need to be answered uh, differently. But the same is true if we think about it with respect to the Samaritan duties of the citizen. Um, just what level of care is it that citizens ought to um, provide for their fellows? Which is to say, just what level of state activities should be endorsed? And again, we've got the night watchman state, the minimal state, Nozick state, and at the other extreme, we've got the full welfare state providing security for arts and letters. Um, that's uh, that question still has to be um, answered. In fact, I I hint at this. Um, my thought would be that it's the just state that the citizen should. Um, endorse. But then justice again is a capacious value uh, which I sketch in a footnote. But that's concerned with you know, this discussion of is it the minimal state or is it a maximal welfare state? That's concerned with the sorts of duties that the state exacts and much of that discussion, the kind of taxes that it um, demands. I should say as well that, um, at least on my reading, and this is why I like talk of citizens' duties uh, much better than talk of political obligation. Arguably, the duties of the citizen are a good deal more compendious than the, well, not quite so simple, duty to um, observe the law. You might think, at least it's something to argue about, that parents have duties to raise their children to be good citizens in turn. Um, you might think that at least a portion, a segment of the population, has a duty to volunteer at a time of uh, just war, to serve in the armed forces. And you may think, and well, I do, that citizens have a duty all other things equal, right? To participate, for example, in democratic decision-making uh, proceedings. These are all duties of the citizen, I think, that a care for, one for one's fellows will um, demand. So I conclude that this duty is an imperfect duty of care and protection for one's fellows, from which what looks like a perfect duty of obedience to the state may be derived in the circumstances plus other duties um, as well. And I suspect the insistence that political obligations and duties are, um, the duty is perfect and then enforceable comes from a very narrow focus, as I believe, on the duty to obey the law. As though the whole subject of normative relations between state and citizens has been fully accommodated by considering the narrow question as to whether one has an obligation to obey the law. Wait, I'll move on. Um, I mentioned the particularity requirement. This is something that the particularity requirement is an instrument fashioned by John Simmons to do strong critical duty um, this is what he says. We need a principle of political obligation which binds the citizen to one particular state above all others, namely the state in which he is a citizen. Now, that's obviously true, 
right? We need a principle of political obligation which binds the citizen to one particular state above all others, namely the state in which he is a citizen. But then he uses this principle to argue against Rawls primarily, who thought that the, um, the justification of the state consisted in explaining that citizens have a natural duty of justice. He then says, yes, but look, if your major concern here is to promote justice, or you know, in a utilitarian case, happiness, or in this case, the, the task of the state, which we should endorse, is to um, um, procure the well-being of um, others, then why not concern ourselves equally with justice? in other states, with the citizens of other states, why draw the boundaries at um, the nation state? If one's duty is to promote justice, then it's justice anywhere and um, everywhere. So that's the, that's the sharp teeth, I think, that this particularity requirement right, is supposed to possess. But I say it's, I don't um, recognize that. I don't recognize that force of the argument um, for a number of reasons, which are quite difficult to tease out. I'm not, not altogether happy with, with this. But this is my first thought, that if one thinks the argument from uh, Samaritanism is, uh, let's say, at least a runner, a plausible argument, a reasonable argument, something to pursue further and something that can fund um, one's obligations, then if it follows as a matter of fact that one has obligations to citizens of other states, then that follows, unless the conclusions are unpalatable when, you know, reductio... Um, Beckons. And then all the interesting questions will, will be, how is one to promote justice in another state? How is one to procure the care of those who um, live in some foreign nation thousands of miles away? You know, it isn't an argument for, as it were, rejecting those duties if that's what fall, falls out of it. Other questions, of course, arise. The reason I think this argument is um, um, persuasive, though, is that it models, I think, the Samaritan argument, and also the argument from justice in defending Samaritanism here. I think I'm defending Rawls as well. Um, the suggestion is that there's a general argument of this form. Citizens have a Samaritan duty to support all governments that exercise a duty of care towards their citizens. And then, of course, if this government in the UK, or if we can see that that government, let's say in France, right, exercises that duty of care, then we derive an obligation on our own part with respect to this government, on their part with respect to the citizens of France, from this general um, principle, right? Now, the reason why I don't think the particularity requirement does pose a, a uh, a significant threat is that, in a sense, I don't think that's where they. It begins at a place where they where it uh, shouldn't. Remember, Simmons said, right? Our prime concern here. Our prime concern is with um, um, the duties that we owe as citizens to one particular state above all others, namely the state in which he is a, a citizen. That's the immediate start of the argument. And in that respect, I agree, right, that invocation of the state of nature as an important premise, at least a crucial assumption, is um, slightly misleading. At least we should be beginning with uh, a community who comprise at least a people, in Rousseau's sense of a people, fashioned and formulated uh, and, and formed by what he called was a legislator, at least a group of people who have sufficient in common to recognize that they're both threatened by and threatening each other. So the problem, in a sense, will be internal to some particular community, the problem of forming a state. Of course, 
And I want to leave that, that apart. I, I hinted earlier on with talk about the state of nature that state forming right, is going to be uh, a, a, a tricky um, issue. But standardly, that's not the way the issue is framed. The problem of political obligation is framed to most of those who think about it. That is to say, citizens investigate their own obligations to a sovereign who is established um, um, over them. There may be good arguments, or there may be no arguments, but at least so far as the start of the argument is concerned, in this particular context, what we are concerned about is whether this state right, is legitimate on the grounds that it procures the well-being of its citizens, or whether we as individual citizens have a Samaritan duty right, towards our fellow citizens. That's the way the problem is framed. I say it's a bit like, the, these analogies are always worrisome, but there you go. It's a bit like the issue of, you know, imagine you have a horrible, disrespectful child, and the child says to you, why should I do as I'm told, right? And you, presumably you make the mistake of arguing at that point. And then you say something like, well, because um, we treat you with tender, loving care, right? Now, that seems to me a good, as good and sim simple an answer as you can um, find. Um, it would be a mistake at that point that the question being raised in that context that one, one should conclude that all parents then have a duty to look after all children, right, whose parents treat them with tender loving care or something of that kind. One hasn't come out with um, a fully universalizable principle and derived its applicability to the particular scenario of this little horrible child at the moment, right? Um, that's been the focus of one's attention. Although, again, one might generalize from it. You know, it may well be. Here's a task for another day. Do we all have duties too? Um, us children, that is. I've, obviously, I've, I've, I see I've slipped to talking about parents and not children. Do all us children have duties towards those parents who look after their children with um, loving care? Different question, I think. Finally, I talk about um, Samaritanism and international duties of care, largely because this is a series of objections here raised by uh, Massimo Renzo. And I said earlier on that maybe uh, in, in extending the duty of care that the state has towards citizens of other nations and the citizen has towards citizens of other sovereign regimes, I said there may be a reductio in the offing. And I want to consider very briefly whether that's correct or not. Um, in point of the legitimacy of the state, whether these wider, this wider construal of Samaritanism threatens it, um, again, I think not. One can imagine, the scenarios aren't easy to reconstruct, but one could imagine a scenario in which a state compromised the Samaritan duties that it had to its own citizens in order to better fulfill Samaritan duties it had to citizens of other regimes, right? It's possible one could think of, of um, that kind of um, scenario, in which case my conclusion is, right, one would simply have a conflict of duties, the duties that the state has is imperfect anyway to its own citizens. One must simply, you know, in the old-fashioned term, weigh the stringency of these duties that are conflicted in this um, dilemma. I have the duty of the state to look after its citizens as a pro tanto duty, a strong reason to act in this way. If someone were to establish in clear cases that that duty must be compromised in order to fulfill wider Samaritan duties, then I would say, so be it. That doesn't say the state has no duties to its citizens, just that this is an occasion when it should be compromised. And so too, if we tackle, the sep sep tackle separately the question of citizens' obligations. Here the horror story is that of Galahad, 
Galahad is John Skorupski's invention. It's the person who appropriately in London, I gave this talk somewhere else and they hadn't a clue what I was talking about, but in, in London you can speak of an oyster card and Galahad, what he can do is fashion his own oyster card, infallibly, right? Uh, totally efficiently. And then every time he uses it, he, tosses, he, he, he tots up the money that's saved and sends it off to Oxfam or something of, of that kind. He's a freelance, esoteric, conscientiously driven um, moralist. And the thought is there's some similar sort of dilemma here for the citizen, right? Who is a good Samaritan but recognizes that Samaritan duties recognizes, one, that they have Samaritan duties to fellow citizens, but two, they extend further than simply. Now, this actually, this is the position of all of us. And so, again, we have a dilemma. Um, now, far be it from me to tell you how to solve this dilemma if you're in possession of one of these wonderful oyster cards, right? But my claim here is... Um, a bit more modest, it's this, right? That it may be possible, who knows what can be discounted right, in these scenarios, it may be possible that the wider duty trumps the narrower one. But again, that isn't an argument against there being a narrower duty. It's an imperfect duty, and it's a protanto duty, and it has a certain weight, and whatever its weight is will be tested as the arguments are explored in the particular case. Well, um, that's it. I conclude that citizens who have a care for those fellows, for their fellows, in the circumstances of a just state, should recognize an obligation um, to support that state and thereby protect their fellow citizens. And I'm confident in attributing the duty of protection of citizens to the state as well. So we'll leave it with uh, Samaritan theory, as it were, as well defended as I can manage. Thank you.